Stand and Deliver. Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast with me, Rodder's New Year, new theme tune, although it is nearly the end of January now, isn't it? But never mind, it's still technically the new year. Uh, that was recorded and uh, composed by Adam Wykert. Uh, I hope I'm saying that name right. It's, it's spelt very strangely. I mean, I'm just so pleased I, got, I commissioned that. It's it's excellent. Go look him up. He's a very talented musician. AdamWykert.Bandcamp.com A-D-A-M-W-E-I-K-E-R-T uh, anyway, my name is Rodders, I'm a comedian, and more importantly at this moment, I'm a podcaster, and I'm also the promoter of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club. Uh, we are right in the heart of Reading, up above Smoking Billy's run shows every month. This podcast gives you a glimpse into the weird world behind the curtain of comedy, and uh, basically it, I interview some of the interesting acts that have passed through the doors of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club, and also some of the people I've met on, on the circuit. My guest today is Jonathan Elston. Uh, He's doubly interesting because not only is he a terrific comedian and uh, he's headline stand and deliver and he's appeared there twice and he's also a promoter. He's run Comedy at Milk in Reading, which is a very trendy sort of uh, rum bar up in an attic. Um, He's been running that for over six years now, so it's it's arguably one of Reading's most successful comedy nights. Uh, (laughs) I can't believe I'm sitting here promoting somebody else's comedy club on my podcast. This is what a stupid businessman I am. I'm rubbish. Uh, but he's on a Tuesday, I'm on a Thursday, so I think we can coexist. Before we get on to our interview, a couple of things for, for me to tell you about. Uh, I want to say hello to uh, the Tubcast, uh, <laughs> because they left me a really nice review on iTunes. Uh, sometimes I do, well, every episode I do an appeal uh, to uh, uh, people to write nice iTunes reviews, because it really makes a difference with a podcast this size. And the more ears and the more listeners we get, the more likely I am to produce more of these uh, podcasts for you. And mostly, uh, my, my pleas uh, for on uh, deaf ears or maybe you switch off the podcast before my begging thing maybe I'll do the begging at the beginning uh, but no uh, the, the guys from the Tubcast podcast at uh, meninatub.com wrote me a lovely review saying I was both smashy and noisy uh, so thanks chaps I had listened to your podcast actually um, I, I, it's, it is just some Americans talking but they're really funny and uh, I, I just it's just a really nice easy fun listen uh, they're not in a bathtub don't worry uh, that would uh, create all kinds of health and safety problems with cables and that the audio would probably suffer as a result but yeah after you finish listening to me go over to meninatub.com and uh, download the tubcast uh so what have i been up to um well by the end of tonight i will have done four gigs this week it, it's been pretty busy the common theme of this week seems to be strange venues. Uh, last night I was in a cafe in Bournemouth on a Saturday night. It was absolutely rammed. And then on Thursday, it was a corporate gig uh, in in the true sense. That's when you basically get booked to do, say, an office party. Um, and uh, generally it's... Now, I don't get a lot of these corporate gigs tend to be notoriously difficult for comedians because often uh, when you're being booked for an office party you're being booked by people who don't understand how stand-up works and might not necessarily even want stand-up but it was my my good comedy mate Sam Smedley who'd been asked to book a comedy show in a PR agency in London and I went for it because I thought 
haven't seen Sam in ages, and it just sounds really, really intriguing. Uh, you might have seen me put on, on, on Instagram that I'm, I get really annoyed when a, uh, comedians take a photo of a room they're gigging in and go, huh, this is my office for this evening. Aren't I interesting? But I literally was in an office. I was performing in the middle of an office. Behind the sort of stage, inverted commas, was the actual boardroom. Um, so it's very, very strange. This is a, a very posh uh, London PR agency, so you I got to the got to the venue nice and early. Uh, go up in a lift, and I just felt really nervous as soon as I stepped in the lift because it reminded me of when I was going for job interviews at these kind of places. Um, so already, I, I keep on having to remind myself: look, you've already got the job. You're doing comedy here tonight. You don't don't have to worry. Um, but it was just really strange. I looked at the room, and they'd done a lot of stuff right considering this wasn't a space designed for comedy or performance they'd done an amazing job they sat all the seats in theatre style rows um uh, there was a microphone the room was well lit enough but we were just in the middle of an office uh with a, a lot of people and they had a free bar so they'd been drinking quite a lot so this had the potential to be an absolute nightmare uh But to my delight, uh, I I went on first and they were really nice. I mean, you could tell they weren't a comedy crowd and you kept on having to... um, I couldn't... If I'd just done material at them, none of it would have worked. None of it would have landed. Because what you had to do, you had to do a bit of crowd work. You had to grab their attention. Then you'd throw in a couple of bits of material. Then you'd pull back. And then, like, uh, I had to rebuke a group of women for for just chatting i I did the whole oh am i interrupting something um (laughs) and then uh um sort of let them mind the curtain if you will and said that in the business is called being passive aggressive so i had a lot of fun with that um because they were chatty but they weren't impossible to control and they were really really up for it they're in the right spirit they were listening they were laughing and i think what really helped is one of the directors of this big company sat in the second row for the whole thing and was an excellent audience member so i think him kind of leading by example um made a big difference but yeah it was really really exciting and uh, I, i stayed for a few drinks afterwards and everyone was just really nice and welcoming them. And what could have been really hard work uh, turned out to be really good fun simply because they were nice people and they wanted us to be there. What was really funny, though, was uh, one of the comedians did tell a bit of a bit of a rude joke and everyone kind of pretended to be shocked when you knew they weren't really. But just because they were still technically at work, uh, <laughs> uh, they sort of pretended to be uh, shocked by rudeness, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. It, it did have a bit of a feeling of a, of a school assembly about it uh but yeah that is uh probably one of the most unusual places i've performed right bang in the middle of an office so by no means an easy gig they made us work for it which isn't necessarily a bad thing I mean, that makes us stronger as acts etc etc doesn't it uh but definitely a fun and memorable evening last night i was in bournemouth i was booked for a rather unusual gig first time comedy night at a rather posh-looking cafe uh, in, in Bournemouth. Rather, rather bizarre. I'll, I'll tell you all about what happened there uh, in a bit after we've heard from today's guest, Jonathan Elston. I really enjoyed uh, talking to Jonathan. What strikes me immediately is just his sheer work ethic and love for comedy. He turned professional at the age of 20, just as he got out of university. And while he was at university, he gigged like an absolute maniac. Uh, incredible number of gigs. And uh, so his real dream come true. He's living out his dream of being a circuit comedian 
And then disaster strikes. The agency he was signed to that booked most of his dates for him went bankrupt. So suddenly he was left trying to have to fill his own diary. And it just shows you how tough the comedy circuit can be. Uh, we, we also did hit a bit of a sore point about how he's never been asked to be part of the Reading Comedy Festival, uh, which now sadly doesn't even exist. So they're missing a real opportunity there on two counts. We then go on to talk about uh, how he's managed to run a successful comedy club for over six years and his comedy promotion Laughtercraft that runs gigs all over the place. And we also talk about some of the mad things that have happened at comedy nights. This is Jonathan Elston. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. We found somewhere quiet to record after walking about five miles. Uh, I'm with Jonathan Elston, you alright? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, so like, oh, I don't know, there's so much to talk about because like, think, think about you, you're, you're a comic, you've been a pro comic since you were at uni and you're a promoter. So let's talk about the com- comedian side first. So was it when you were at uni you went pro or was that just when you started doing it seriously and that led to it? Uh, I started doing it seriously when I was at uni and then it was when I graduated I decided to not get a real job and because I was only 20 and didn't have an adult lifestyle I could get away with earning a very small amount and somehow still covering the bills and the overdraft. So what was the course or did you not even look, look at the title? Oh, uni? Uh, I did history and politics. I, uh, I started, I didn't do my first gig to the end of my first year, so I had no intention when I joined university of being a stand-up in any way whatsoever. It was just something that happened to me as I was doing it. What made you jump on and, and do it all of a sudden? I thought it was funny. Um, that sounds very arrogant, doesn't it? But it's true. I'd always wanted to give it a go. Uh, a friend of mine, one of my best friends, actually, uh, did his first ever gig at a comedy club. I went and watched him, and he didn't go as well as he would have liked. Uh, and I asked the promoter if he would give me a gig, and unbelievably it was a weekly gig, which, as we all know, is quite rare in the world of comedy, and even more rare, he was happy to let me come on next week. Uh, so I did it, and it was it went all right. So thanks to irresponsible booking, a new comedian was born. Yeah, I just down to lazy promoting, which I can completely get my head around now <laughs> I do it myself, that I, I can see it, yeah. Because, like, I think the main thing, because a lot of people say, oh, comedy's really scary, or oh, I could never do it, but isn't the main thing is because they don't really want to do it? quite a big question um i'm a big believer in life that you only do what you really want to do so a lot of people will say i really want to travel the world it's not that hard book a flight obviously there's other elements to it you have to save money you have to do all the usual stuff but you know if you really want to do something in life you find a way of doing it i think the best example of that is me steve day is a comedian uh, he's he's deaf as, as a lot of comedians will know he started doing comedy in the 90s when uh the um internet didn't really exist and you had to ring up for all your gigs and he was deaf he had to ring up for his gigs he had to get his wife to ring on his behalf to get the gigs uh, and he's been a professional top comic in, on the circuit for the last however many years. So he made it happen despite many disadvantages in that region. And I think that proves if you want to do something, you go and do it. What was on the circuit just as you wanted to to get on? And did you look at those people and think, well, I've, I can find a place here? Or you were not thinking and think, I'll, I'll make my own, own niche? Uh, oh no, I was I I did not have that much that much imagination. I was all about following the circuit dream. Um, I was very lucky that at my third ever gig, Gary Delaney and Sarah Millican were on, and they were very positive and gave me lots of positive feedback. And Gary, in particular, uh, got me quite a lot of my first gigs. He brought me along to do five minutes at a lot of his clubs that he was headlining. Uh, so I took a lot of my lead from him and the advice. When I was started gigging, uh, jonglers was still a thing where you could earn a, a really good wage as a comic and, and there was a lot more money in just doing live stand-up. So all my dream ever was was to earn enough money to support myself and a hypothetical family by doing live stand-up comedy. Nowadays that's a massive ambition, isn't it? Because it's so hard. But has it got harder since you started to make a living full-time on the circuit? 
Oh yeah, it's massively harder. Um, I think there's more gigs than there was, but there's also a lot more talented comedians, and it's definitely a buyer's market nowadays when it comes to promoting and, and live work. Um, so I think nowadays earning a lot of money from live stand-up is, is a challenge. It's definitely doable, but it's definitely a lot more of a select few than maybe it maybe was, say, 10, 15 years ago. What was the advice Sarah Millican and uh, Gary Delaney gave you? Or was it so set-specific you can't really quote it? It wasn't really about set specific, it was just about working hard. It sounds really cliched as anything, but you know, um, I'm a big believer that hard work will be talent. Obviously, you need a little bit of both to get where you want to get to. Um, but they were just telling me how hard to work, how much I needed to turn over material, how I needed to gig minimum three times a week, if not more. Uh, and it was I took it all on board as much as I could as a, as a young 20 year old making his way in the world. So, did you gig a hell of a lot? when you were a student then? I gigged ferociously. Um, I remember in my third year of uni, uh, in a two-month period, I had a run of 15 gigs in 16 days and a run of 9 in 10, and that was all within uh, a 40-day period, plus other gigs obviously in, in, in and around it. I would gig three to five nights a week. I, would, I had no responsibilities. I had enough spare money to get myself up and down on National Express and trains. I was at uni. I had a, a flexible lifestyle. I, I, I gigged everywhere. I, so when everyone was going to like, uh, I don't know, summer ball and stuff, you were on the train to to Crawley to do ten minutes in a in a pub somewhere. Do you, do you think, looking back, do you think, oh, I wish I'd had a bit more fun at uni, or was that just just what you wanted to do and just the right thing? Uh, that's good. That's a really good question. Um, a bit of both. Um, I really, really, really want to be a stand-up comedian more than anything I've ever wanted to do in my life. So I can never regret pursuing that wholeheartedly. Uh, I had a great time at university. I'm, I'm getting married this year, and two of my groomsmen are my my best friends from uni. Uh, but I did in my at Christmas at my in my final year. I'd got to a point where I was burning out as a human being. I was gigging. I was I was getting to the interesting part of my degree where people actually needed me to do some work. Um, and I realised I now six months after being a student. So I in that six months. Took, I took my foot off the pedal with a few gigs and definitely made sure I got drunk as much as everyone else. Sweet, so you made up for it in the end. Mm, brilliant. Because <laughs> I found, like, I've never ever gigged as much as you, uh, but I've done, uh, done my biggest lot of gigs since like June. That's the longest run I've had to the most gigs, most uh, gigs per week, etc. And I had this really, really horrible gig, and afterwards I was really fed up and I was. I was um, and I just thought, well, thank God I've got a, d- a day job now to just, if I needed some time out and wanted to just recoup, I, there's no one forcing me to do it so I can stop and so I can keep comedy fun. Because I know if I'm miserable on stage, I won't be funny. But when you went professional, you must have just had to have toughened up and done hundreds of that one bad experience I, I had. I like the fact you think I had hundreds of bad gigs, what is <laughs> Well, um, a badly run gig, should we, should we caveat that with? Um, yeah, it's part of being a comic, isn't it? I think, I think a lot of comics have that honest. Gigs don't always go as well as they like to portray they do, maybe on social media. A lot of times at gigs, it's just good enough. Um, but also, it's, it's a learning experience. It's toughening up, it's experience. It's, you know, you shake it off, you know. But what I mean is when, when the gig itself is actually unplayable and, and awful... Um, I could name brands, but it would be unwise, just in case I need an open spot sometime. But there are certain promotions that are known for, for just... Uh, it's a blooming bun fight in a pub, and you and the comics are funny despite the terrible conditions they're placed under. And it just... You think it's... A, I think sometimes it's, it's, they're just wasting talent by sticking them in these, these sort of environments. 
Yeah, it's true. It's, it, I think it's most of most young comics. I don't mean any in an age way. I mean it in an experience way. Experience is part of what you do. It makes you realize when you get a good rooms. It inspired me to strive harder to get out of those rooms. You know, it wasn't where I wanted to be. I don't think anyone wants to be in those rooms, really. Uh, it, but you know what? If you remove that element of of the comedy world, it could be quite. There's, there's there's a place for it, you know. There shouldn't be, but there is, isn't it? Maybe looking back through very cynic glasses, but there were some fun moments in all that madness. But yeah, it's not. If you'd want to be serious as a comic and you've got something to say or you want to earn money from it, you don't want to be in those rooms for long. So it's a good way of getting out of them. Makes you want to work harder. Is there a, a most horrible? Because I've had one where someone was thrown for a balustrade above me and a, a fight erupted during one of my my sets. Um, but y- you must have had some absolute horror stories. Yeah, um, I think. The gig that comes to mind, I didn't actually, as funny as comedians ego, I actually got laughs, which means it shouldn't be that bad. Um, but it was a gig where the opening, it was a free entry gig in a pub on a Saturday night where no one knew there was comedy on. The opening act went on, was doing fine, and then got punched in the face by a guy in the audience. Uh, completely unprovoked, the act didn't deserve it. Uh, didn't say anything bad to him, didn't say anything cheeky to him. The promoter then put me on after the break... Um, because I was, and I quote, quite good at crowd work. Um, I was in one on, there was maybe about 10, 15 people listening, and they were actually quite nice to people listening. But about four to six minutes in, uh, a guy at the bar glassed another guy at the bar, uh, at which point we all vacated the pub at Pace, uh, and I travelled down from Coventry to Eastleigh to do that gig. Uh, for for no money. What was your thoughts on the way back? Was it oh what a mad night, what an adventure, or did you just think I don't want to be doing this again? Really, I thought can't wait to write about this on Facebook. Really, <laughs> I was twenty twenty one or whatever. You know, it was I was like, having so much fun. You're young, you got there's no you know you're in this whole new world doing comedy. I just loved everything about it. I didn't I didn't actually dissect the gig so much to think oh god this how is this about my career. <laughs> The next day I had my first paid gig at Downstairs, The King's Head. And that's why I'd taken that gig, was to try and get match fit for, for Downstairs, yeah. King's Head. So I just remember it being a, a funny, not a funny moment, obviously a quite a horrible moment, but, you know, just a, a story that added some colour yeah, to the world. I think being new at comedy, sometimes the biggest advantage of it, it isn't a drudge. Stuff like that is exciting rather than tedious. I would always put my actual physical life age into, into context when I was started gigging. I was young, I was having fun. I think if I was starting off now doing those rooms, I definitely probably wouldn't have stuck at it because it would have felt a lot more futile. makes you wonder how some of the... Like there must be some sort of mindset. Maybe it's just professionalism and just getting on with it because you know there's a good gig around the corner and you just just do it. I guess Is that just as because I, I do want to know how to do these horrible gigs and survive without being too despondent because it shouldn't affect me, but it it, it does. I'd like to find out. I do do some nice rooms. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. But these, these no one asks about. Like, there's like anecdotes for you. you no, know, I know. If, if I told my friends, oh, the other evening I had a very nice time and that uh, well-crafted knock-knock joke worked, they they'd be bored by me. But they want to hear about the <laughs> the hell holes. I think it's experience as well. I think it's also self-confidence. So, uh, not not to be disparaging but you're still quite new in your comedy journey and your experience of live work so you maybe don't have the biggest bank of previous positive affirmation for yourself when you come across a bad room so you might take a new act will take that knock harder because it's a bigger punch if you've been gigging a little while and you've done more good gigs than bad gigs you learn to maybe add a bit of context to how bad that was and why it was bad you know it's not always just down to you 
Because if I did that now, I'd run into the risk of just blaming an audience, whereas at my level, that's the, probably the least beneficial thing I could do for development. They always say the cliche is it's never the audience's fault. Uh, Must be sometimes, though, right? I think so. Some of them are bastards. Yeah, definitely. I've done some very rough rooms where I've been full of very not very nice people. And that's, that's the way it is. But a lot of the time you can try and control it. And the more you gig, the better you can try and make these bad situations. The more experienced you are, the more weapons you've got in your armoury to improve a situation. So I guess, I guess it means, because if you've seen the worst gig, then suddenly you're, you're going to actually appreciate a really, really good gig and then be able to rise to it. Yeah, definitely. And, and you need to set your, personally, I think you set your um, expectations for how well a gig goes depending on the room. So I'm very lucky. I'm one of the regular MCs at the Comedy Cellar in Bracknell, which is one of the best gigs in the country. Uh, if I do anything less than stellar there, I'm disappointed. Uh, I feel like I should be smashing that gig every time I walk on that stage. And if I don't, I feel disappointed. But equally, I could walk into a much rougher room and get laughs and make it playable and get uh, get away with it. it. Makes it sound like I'm a fraud. I don't mean it like that. Hmm. But you know, it, the cards are stacked against you, and then that can be just as much an achievement. So when you when you get on stage, like what's in your control as far as because obviously if, if it's not your gig you haven't set the room up what, what do you think what do you feel is within your power when you, when you get on stage your demeanour with the audience so you can act how you want the, if you're emceeing you can often you can act like the teacher if you need to be you can set the, you can set the tone for the room you can you know you've all seen a compare do the rules they're more important than people realise because they're actually telling the audience how they're going to behave they're going to have their phones off they're not going to heckle and they're going to give you a big round of applause when someone steps on the stage uh, so if something if it's a nightmare and you go aggressive because and that's undeserved and that makes the room bad and that was bad on you you made that room bad if you go into a room and it's a and it's a bit rowdy and you don't stamp on it uh, like you should have done then that's also bad on you because you didn't do your job equally it's so it's finding that balance it's judging a room quickly it's judging what's going to work and it's it's making it work like that so you stopped comedy for a bit and went travelling with your now fiancé was that because you were fed up of comedy or because you had a fiancé or or was it just you needed a break because you went from professional comedian to semi-professional comedian so what was the trajectory there actually that's probably a better way to start because you were after university you went full time pro or on yeah. a bill with loads of names you could just name them all and half of them on the TV kind of thing now yeah and then what, what was the journey after, after that okay so the journey was after university decided to go full time year later got an agent suddenly actually earned enough money where life wasn't stressful anymore uh, recession came in, agency collapsed, left me with no work. I struggled to fill that work. Suddenly wasn't making enough money from live comedy anymore. Uh, so at that point I had to get a job, which was quite hard to take from an ego perspective, but from a mental health perspective it was actually quite rewarding. Um, then from there, since then, I've had a day job and gigged at the same time. Um because to be honest with you, I, I don't feel I'm. I've just turned thirty. I'm at a time in my life where I uh, want to buy a house. I want to have a family. I want to have that financial security, and I'll be straight up and honest about it. I'm not good enough at comedy at the moment to guarantee that. Um, so that's the way that is. Uh, I went travelling because I've always wanted to, and, and there is more to life than comedy. I absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah, that's what you've got to remember, I guess, sometimes, isn't it? It's very easy to get stuck in whatever sphere you're in. So if you want to be good at something, you're bound to be obsessive, and then you miss out on other stuff. Yeah, I think 
the uh, the question was if I was still a full time comic and had a full as full of diaries I'd like in the clubs I wanted, would I have wanted to go travelling? Yeah. To be totally honest, probably not because it wouldn't have felt like I needed to do something to make myself happier. Uh, but do I? And my pizza gone travelling absolutely. It's one of the best things I've done in my life, and it also made me realise while I was away not gigging. And the minute I got back, it made me realise how much I wanted to still be a comedian, how much I still had a, a thirst for it, and how much I still enjoyed doing it. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, life's not always one way, is it? You know, it's not always as easy. Some acts have it great, and it all goes really easy for them, and, and I did nothing. But, you know, I've been very lucky. I've done a lot of cool things. I've, you know, been up to Edinburgh, I've headlined Big Value, I've MC AAA up there, I've supported people like Milton Jones. I've, I've had, you know, I've had good gigs, I've... I've had terrible gigs, uh, but I've had lots of life experience. And you know what? Once you get over your own ego in this job and you realise you're just doing it for fun, uh, but I still take a very professional attitude to it. Like, I always go out and do my very best, and I always... It still it still matters. still cares to me. I still care about it. If I have a bad gig, I don't just brush it off. It still it comes home with me. And all comics know that's important, because if you don't care, you don't try, and I'm still trying. So you would have, if you didn't care by now, you would have just not gone back, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't need comedy anymore for money. Although I enjoy the money, the promoters out there don't stop paying me. <laughs> uh, but I don't need it for money. I, I do it because it makes me happy. I enjoy it, and in my humble opinion, I'm quite good at it. Mm. Oh, no, I wouldn't turn up to Milk and Watch if it wasn't good fun. And that, that, that brings us on to Milk, because uh, you've been promoting Milk. Is it six years or something? Like? Yeah, around that sort six of time. years. Yeah. And that time, Jonglers has closed twice in Reading, um, <laughs> but. Yeah, uh, I just, well, I run a night, and you run a night, and like I love going to watch your night. And the booking policy is quite different. There's a different format. What, what do you? How do you describe your kind of uh, your, your your booking policy and the, the way you you put the night together? Because you get some blooming big names uh, on a Tuesday. I'd love to say there's a big master plan behind it, but I just try and get the best acts I can. Um, Tuesday makes it easier. All the top acts are working on the weekend. Of course they are. They're the best acts. Tuesday night, yeah, the top acts are still working, but they have a few more gaps. And all the comics were claiming they're busy on Tuesday. They're talking out of us. Um, so I'm very lucky that I get acts like Marlon Davis, Nathan Caton, Zoe Lyon, Dave Johns tonight, uh, Carl Donnelly. I'm sure I'll offend someone that I've forgotten to mention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Angela Barnes, Jeff Norcott. You know, all these acts you see on Live at Apollo or et cetera, et cetera. Darren Harrier, another one's on TV credits. But not only acts with TV credits. You know, we've had people like uh, Rich Wilson, we even went back old school the other week. We had Ian Cognito old school. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very lucky that I've gigged with a lot of these acts. They 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 know me on a personal level, um, so it, it's not like a promoter coming out of the blue. It's more saying, "Hey, come do this gig for me," and they're like, "Yeah, cool, why not?" And they get to try some new stuff. I run it as a new material night in Reading. I run stuff on a on a weekend up in Oxford, Leicester as well. And with that, uh, you know, they get proper weekend wages, as I would call it, and and they get more money but I always try and book the best acts I can and the most the acts that are most suitable to the, to the venue as well it's a cool venue like it's, it's, it's nothing like it in this in town and it's I think it's quite unique uh, sort of across the country it's a strange attic room you can fit it it's deceptively it's larger than it seems you can fit it what do you, what's the reckon the, the max capacity is there roughly 60 to 80 maybe if you crammed them right to the back and didn't care about fire eggs probably not 70 with fire eggs yeah um, they reckon they got 70 seats until I get 70 people in, and then suddenly there's only 62 seats. Um, but yeah, I was, I was 70, charged £5 in. It's been running for six years. Uh, started it 
there used to be a gig in that room years and years and years ago, before, probably before your time was. Uh, it was called Big, Big Jack's Laughter Club. And if you're a comic that's listened to this and you know what that is, you've been gigging too long. Um, and it was on a Thursday night, it was overpriced, the bills weren't strong enough, and because of it, numbers were. Uh, well, diminishing so at the time me and Matt Richardson who you may have seen on TV yeah, yeah. Um, wanted to he lived at Didcot at the time uh, we were looking for something to try new stuff we didn't want to go into London to do it because of the amount of money it would cost in the journey I approached Jack first to say are you still wanting to do this gig he said he wanted to give it up at that point me and Matt then approached the venue uh, to say we wanted to we were interested in running on a Tuesday night we were going to drop the price to £3 a ticket uh, and they snapped our hands off and then the first one sold out in about a day uh, which was a bit surprising uh, we, do, we don't sell out all the time but we, we, are, we average about 40 to 50 I'd say uh, on a Tuesday been running for six years it's, it's good fun well, I don't know the financials you need a minimum in to make it worthwhile but I've never been in there and thought well this is empty there's always been even when there's a smaller crowd it just has a nice like I was in there and it was just a bit of a smaller crowd but it was a, it was a friendlier gentler vibe so it's just like sometimes your, your gig's really interesting because like first half they're really really hard work sometimes it seems to be despite the fact you tell them a lot of this stuff's new and then Second half, it's like you've kicked them out and got a nicer audience in sometimes. Is it because that seems to be consistent of most evenings? What is it about that place that that does that? Because it's not like you don't do lots of crowd work. It's not like I guess maybe if you didn't do anything, they'd be like that all the way through, only worse. I don't, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't overly enjoy seeing this gig some weeks, some months. I'll yeah. be totally honest. Um, I think one of the reasons we sometimes have a quieter audience or a tougher crowd at the start of the night is a Tuesday night, so people are naturally a bit more reserved. Tuesday night, you're not having a mad one. You're probably having two free drinks, one per break. Um, we have a lot of international uh, people come to the gig, more than I have ever really actually recognised. But we often have a good contingent of 10 to 15 people whose English is not their first language. Even they've been kind of six years and they're great and they get all the jokes, but they probably have to think about it a little bit more before getting raucously involved. Um, and also, it's only £5, and I, I think we have quite a large proportion of, even I don't promote it to them, to, of meet-up groups. Right, uh, people that maybe don't know each other that much. So I've noticed ten, that. I've, I, I've got got a meetup group in in my club, and I I think they're brilliant because a lot of them have been coming so long they've stopped being meetup people. They're just my club regulars. Yeah. But I always put them in a. I don't put them at the front. I'm always very careful where I seat them because they are harder to make laugh because they don't know each other. They're more inhibited. So I just think if you had an entire room full of meetup people, it would be very very hard work. Oh yeah, I mean we don't. I mean when I say we get meetup people, we probably get another group of ten. You know it's not that you know um it's just it's, you know it's 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 reading it's full of white middle class slightly socially awkward people yeah and that's that's fine and, and it's but it's a good testing ground for new material because i'll be honest with you if it works there i've never had anything work in my room that hasn't worked in another room right but i have had stuff that hasn't worked in my room that has then gone on to work elsewhere yeah no that's interesting because i feel with my my room because it's slightly different mine is i guess it's like 60s absolute max but it's a smaller room than yours sort of smaller and it's like i i sometimes feel especially in the beginning i was kind of training an audience who didn't understand comedy who were actually quite scared and were worried the mc was just gonna rip into them all the time because i found that once we showed them that comedy that comedians are just here to give you a good night once my audience accepted that as a concept they've become nicer and nicer and easier to play to do you, do you kind of feel like you're you're training your audience or do you not look at it like that 
Maybe that's me being a control freak. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm training an audience at all. I don't think... I have some people that have been coming for six years, some people have been coming a month. It's, it's so interchangeable. I don't feel like I've got a, a die-hard comedy crowd here that only want a certain style of act. Uh, I've tried to guess them before, and I've put a certain acts that I think they'll absolutely love, and they've not loved. I and mean, then acts that I'm like, well, they're a good act, but I'm not sure about the room, but you know what? They're a good act, let's book them, and they've had a great time. I, I don't think... I think... Training an audience is, is a bit... I think it's a bit of a myth. Hmm. I think it's... You know what? How many times did one audience come back every single month? Not really. You have good clubs, but I don't think you have a good... Like, you know... But can't you cultivate kind of... An, you must... Just just by running a gig for so long, you must have cultivated a vibe or, or an ethos that... You know what I mean? I mean, your club feels different to other clubs just because you, like... For example, if you go to a room where people... The, the booker cares about comedy, that's already going to feel a lot nicer than... If they don't, oh yeah, I mean, you know, no one gets heckled in my gig. Uh, no one, no one gets treated rudely by the audience. Uh, phones never go off. I know it's not like I'm just doing rules, but yeah. for a lot of comedians, they go, oh, "Christ, that sounds amazing." Um, <laughs> the bar's so low, isn't it? Like no. that's why I wanted to set up my gig because, like, even in my time of doing comedy, I've just seen nights where you look at it and think, "Well, how could that possibly work?" They're all sitting facing the opposite way to the stage. At least give me a chance. So that was, I just wanted to do the opposite to all the horrible gigs I'd seen. Yeah, I think, and that's good. You need to set up a gig for the right intentions. It needs to be to create a good night because otherwise people won't come back. And it sounds obvious, but. You know, some people have set up gigs. I've done so many gigs. I, it amazes me on Facebook. I, I've always thought there must be so many dead Facebook groups of gigs that now no longer exist. Yeah, someone should make a, a Tumblr out of them all. Yeah, I feel that must be... A comedy graveyard. Probably see my face on all those posters. <laughs> um, but people know in, the, in, in life, they know what they're buying and they know what they're, they're doing. So if they're having a good time, they'll come back. And if they're not... I'll be honest with you... Uh, uh, last year I took my eye off the ball booking wise a little bit uh, not the headliners as such but I wasn't getting ahead of booking and I was getting a lot of people last minute uh, which you know not to be disparaging to those accents all, I'm always grateful anyone that will come and play my audience play my stage and that's very nice and, but they might not have been to the calibre of acts that I might, may have been previously booking and that led to a dip in shows where I wasn't enjoying them as much I didn't have as confident in them and I definitely took a 20% hit on the door you know, really? I, so, yeah, I know it's a, a small little dip, um, but that's why I've got my headliner sorted for this run uh, and into February, and I'm get, I've lined up the acts I want in who didn't support. Obviously, I, they do new stuff, so I'm not going to go into finances because I, I pay my headliner, but I don't want to let people know how much they pay because it's not fair on the acts. Yeah, it's not necessarily their market um, value. It's it's, it's definitely not because they weigh up. Oh well, I want to do this new stuff, so. It's kind of there's loads of factors that go into it. It's not their worth. Yeah, and also I've been doing comedy a long time, and they know me, so they know if that's the deal I'm offering. They know it's probably a fair deal on the room. They know it's not. I'm not. Trust me here on my five pound new material on a Tuesday. I'm not booking a holiday to Bahamas. Yeah. Equally, I'm not going to pretend I'm losing money. I'm not. I'm making a profit, but mm. I'm promoting it. And I'm emceeing it. So. Yeah, it's a job's yeah. a job, isn't it? It'd be silly if you did that for nothing. I I've been doing comedy too long to to, yeah. to to not make money from it when I do it. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy it, but I sound like I'm going back on what I was saying earlier. Like, there's a line, there, isn't there? Like, you you want to there's a balance. You don't want to be you because I I like earning a bit of money just out. Of, so the fact that I'm not being taken for granted because it's it's hard work running the club. Like the, the admin's relentless. It's, it's reward. You're doing a job, whatever mm. that is. So I've been gigging. I, I've did my hard yards. I did my gigs for no money. 
Um, this is what I do. I did it. I got to a point now where, although some acts will, or some promoters might disagree, I always thought I should get paid. Unless I'm obviously doing a trial, so I yeah. see me. I'm still willing to do that. But if not, if it's a promoter I know, I, I want to be paid. And equally, if I'm going to the effort of... If, if you were to, you know, by the time you list a, a, a comedy gig on the web, on, on the multiple internet event websites, there yeah. are, it's, what, an hour's work, give or take? Yeah. Give once you get there, post design, contacts and post... The, the, you know, you're looking to a fresh. If you put that out to a freelance admin professional... Yeah, they get they get paid more than some of the comics at some gigs. That is fun because the, the economy is all wonky. Well, is there a difficulty with being an act and a promoter? Because I find I go to write my set and I just end up with my spreadsheet booking acts and, and maybe that shows some evenings. And do you find there's also a, a politics element to your... You're the guy that runs a gig. Yeah, definitely. Um, I genuinely, genuinely do always try to only book on merit and I can hand on heart say that I've ne- I'm just hesitating here because I just want to make sure I'm not bullshitting and I'm not I've I've never booked someone just because they run a gig I never have I have noticed in some instances though where I have booked someone for a gig genuinely because I think they're good enough and they should be doing the gig that they've then offered me a gig in you know back um I always I'll take it. Why would I not? You know, I like to gig. I, I think I'm good enough to do that, that job. And, and, you know, but I don't ever say to anyone, oh, uh, if you do mine, can I do yours? I never do that. I, I, I don't have a lot of respect left as a performer, but I still have that element to it. Um, and yeah, and I'll be honest with you, I get a lot. I, I run a monthly gig in Leicester. I run a quarterly gig in Oxford. I run this gig. Um, and I, I sometimes run some other bits and pieces as ad hoc as they come in. Not 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 life changing money for anyone, but regular mm. work, um, and I have a lot of the same acts that contact me asking for gigs, and I will be sure about it. I ignore a lot of those responses because I don't have time to get back to all of them. Uh, it's a convenient excuse. The other excuse is it's socially awkward to keep saying going back to someone and going, no, I don't want to give you that gig. I think it's it's horrible. It's too socially awkward. They're always they should always be. It's weak. horrible saying now, like, but I guess if you want them, you'll ask them. So there's no point in them asking, I guess. Well, they're salesmen, though. They've got to yeah. get... They've, you know, if you don't ask, don't get in this job, you know. The minute you stop generating... Unless you've got a really good live booking agent and they don't really exist that much anymore, yeah. you need to get your own work regardless of what it is. So there are promoters that I ask, not incessantly, but regularly for work, who don't get back to me. That's the game. I You yeah. take it very personally. Mm-hmm. I don't anymore. Um, I also do the same to acts where I advertise work. They ask me for work. I don't think they're suitable, so I don't book them. But then you get to an embarrassing moment where you look at your Facebook inbox with that person because I, that is my one regret and I, oh, one of my things to be away from next year is booking via Facebook Messenger because it sounds horrible but people can literally see when you've read the message. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, 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 that's rude and I would like to get away from it but it's laziness and with the amount of stuff booked on Facebook it just makes it easier for me just to keep it all in Facebook. Uh, but I don't know, maybe you can, can you turn notifications off so people can't see if you've seen it? I don't know, there's some weird... Like, the best you can do is put your phone in flight mode and then read the message and then not put your phone out of flight mode. OK. But then, you, but then you'll get, never get a notification again, so all I guess right. it solves all problems. But then yeah. you won't have a headliner. Uh. Yeah. But, like, looking back at all the bills you've had, and it's mm. six, six years of comedy at Milk, Yeah. I mean, I can see why someone would love doing... keep doing comedy, keep doing stand-up... But it's a grind doing a gig. Do you just think is it 
do you still you must still like doing it and do you think that like, Reading's getting a mini comedy scene do you think you've you've, you've done something here or I'd like to think so. I don't yeah. think. I don't think so. Um, I'm going to take this as an example to bitch and moan. Uh, we have a Reading Comedy Festival, and despite the fact I'm a pro actor, not anymore. We don't. Well, it's disappeared. Well, well, while there was one, yeah. despite being in some ways the most successful promoter in the area, I was never once asked to take part. I was never asked to program shows. I was never once told to book any. Asked to book anyone. Uh, so, so in that respect, Reading didn't involve me. Um, you run a gig, I run a gig. There's there's uh, just a tonic, which is obviously different again, a different yep. vibe. Um, the few little bits dotting around, but I wouldn't say Reading has a comedy scene. I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. What needs to happen to make it happen? Because there's a few more. There's more comics now in Reading more, uh, than than before. Slightly, there's still only about ten. I could probably name all of them. There's a couple more gigs than there used to be. What would happen to make it a proper little scene? Just. It's just more gigs that sustain, isn't it? I think that's the issue, because uh, since I've started my club, I can name three, four, five nights that set up in competition, and not an arrogant way, they're not here anymore. Mm. And it's not because I blew them out of the water or anything, I just kept my head down, kept my kept my qualities, my standards high, and they didn't. Your gig's the only one that's sustained uh, with me, which is good, because you need more than one. And mm. it's a free market. I no problem with anyone opening a gig up around the corner from me. You know, it, we live in a capitalist side. Yeah, it's a, it's a different night. Anyway, it's a very different vibe. I think we, we share about three audience members. The bloke with a baseball cap, <laughs> him, you're regular. He comes along sometimes. Um, but it's not like... It doesn't damage. And if comedians know there's a few gigs in Reading, it'll be easier for me to book them and, like... That, that's, I think, I think it, more more gigs the better, really. And from a selfish perspective, the more places I can gig, why not? Like, yeah, definitely for live circuit, the more good gigs that are out there. Gigs have a, have a budget of some kind are important. You know, of course, there's a place for open mic nights. There genuinely is, but there's also a point where, you know, what acts are worth paying, and they should be paid, and the good ones are worth it. As you do in your own night, you pay your headline, you pay your MC. I think you even give your open spots some expenses. It, it depends if there is enough just it to caveat that. But yeah, if there's if there's left over, then like give them some petrol money, yeah, pay for their parking or whatever. But well, what should the? Because I was thinking, well, what's my well, my place on the circuit with my club? And I think I want to be between the the anything goes, anyone can have a go open mics, and the really hard to get on just the tonic style things that only book the pros so I've got the the headliner and the MC to ensure a quality night and then I've got people of my standard or around my sort of experience because they're the ones that need the gigs like my headliners are great like you you did a great job but you don't if I don't book you someone else will whereas people like me we need those 10 spots to to get better where do you do you where do you look at your gig in the landscape of comedy mm-hmm. well I generally well hmm, I generally book Proact doing new stuff in Reading, uh, but I'm never against the idea of someone doing ten. Um, if someone wants to come and do it, I don't get a lot of. I don't get asked a lot for people to come and do Reading, and it also amazes me sometimes. You, I do get dropouts because I'm not paying people. That's part for the course. Yeah. Um, the headliner. Uh, but when I advertise it as a you know spot, take take a ten. So I get very few offers, despite the amount of acts that want to you know claim they want to do it. I get very few offers. Um, and in Leicester, I pay everyone on the bill and I do a 70 quid middle uh, which gives acts who are just breaking into paid work a paid gig um, always on with a pro bill um, but you know it'd be rude not, not, let's not muck around here it's not a charity people get yeah. those gigs because they earn it mm-hmm. and they're, I've, I've, I've worked with them and I've been impressed and I thought they can do it or 
I've, you know, they work for enough promoters that I recognise, that I know, that I, you know, I, I talk to promoters, you know, we talk to each other. Another thing I always think is really important as well, if you're a promoter and you're watching someone do a 10 as a tryout or they're, they're doing a paid middle and, and they want to get more work out of you is, is watch it as a promoter. The amount of act times I've, I've personally either performed or seen an act come perform and the promoter's either A, not turned up, or and yes, so that's not possible every show and they have to rely on, on show reports and that's fine as long as you actually follow the show report. But if you're in the room, and I, I try really hard not to, is to... It's so easy to chat with the headline and opener because you know them, their mates, their friends, yeah. their people. You're like, oh, how's it going? Catch up. And then you've got some new act on stage doing their best and you're not watching it and you're not giving that act the respect they deserve. Yeah, and they probably only travel to be seen by uh, a promoter. Yeah, so I suppose you've got to get back and open your gig soon. Doors open Doors soon. Doors open at half seven. Yeah, yeah. Half seven, oh, okay. So what, lots of, str- I don't know if this is too broad a question to ask, but lots of mad things happen at comedy nights. Can you pick out, because well, there's always something that I remember from your gig, like from if an audience member does something strange, or there's always, can you think of anything particularly memorable that's happened over the last sort of six years at the, the, the club? The the club the most thing I remember once was like we had uh, Nathan Caton uh, headlining this time last year. Uh, we had to kick an audience member out because he was we were suspected he was under the influence of drugs. And yes, we, I was in that night. <laughs> yeah, and he had drugs on his person, um, so he was removed. He then said he was refusing to leave because he bought a ticket, and Nathan Caton would not perform unless he was there. Um, <laughs> Which I, was he Nathan Caton's rider? <laughs> I, I don't know. I spoke to, when Nathan got here. I, we kicked him out. We gave him his money back because it was easier than anything else. Uh, and then, and while he, we kicked him out, he was swearing and threatening and say we'd fear the day. It turned out he was the new guitarist in Pete Doherty's latest band, uh, which took a weird twist. Um, Nathan Caton had never heard of him. Had no idea who he was. I didn't know why he was there. Um, and the most hilarious moment, though, was the next day was that said guitarist, Mr. Rock and Roll, left us a one-star Google review, uh, which is pretty <laughs> pathetic. Um, so that, that, the club's quite well run. We've had we've had a couple of walk storm outs and stuff, and you know I've I got I've, you know I've been heckled a few times and it's been dealt with, but nothing out of the ordinary, nothing. Now, that was the exception to the rule, wasn't it? But I, I do remember that. Like it's. Uh... It was dramatic. I know. In, how, how long has my club been going? I think two and a half years, nearly three. Only ever had to remove two people. I, well, I didn't do it. <laughs> I, I let the heavies do it. Um, Bill did it. But I. Um, it was a, it, weird enough. It was a mum. Uh, it was a mum and a son. And at best, they were drunk. Uh, they could have been doing something else. And that was bizarre because they were given a refund, and then they threatened to sm- smash the owner's windows. And I just thought. And what was weird, the rest of the audience, that was one of the nicest crowds we've ever had, yet we had these two people that just wouldn't shut up. It's bizarre how that happens. It probably showed that the nice crowd shows those people up. I mean, I've done lots of gigs and, you know, I've had stuff happen and all sorts of stuff, you know. I've been, I've done art military gigs where I've had to deal with, you know, all sorts of aggro there and I've had people waiting for me in car parks to beat me up after a gig. Um... You know, but seriously, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Someone, wait, uh, four guys, wait for me in the car park at the Coventry Showcase uh, to beat me up because I put them down in the gig. Um, got out of it by running away like a like a big man. Um, play, that's crazy. It's four on one, and it's just who who takes a comedy. If you take a comedy show so seriously that you want to punch someone, then you're not treating it as a comedy show. 
True, but you never know what's... I mean, that behaviour is never, never defendable or justifiable. Yeah. Uh, but, sorry, worth remembering the amount of time you do gigs. You don't know what's going on in people's lives. You don't know what they've been through that day. You don't know what they've been through that week. Not that. But sometimes an, in, an, an innocuous comment can really set someone off. Um, that doesn't justify that behaviour. And, you know, we have the right to perform without fear of physical threat. Um, but... It's a very, very minor element of the job. It's very minor. Even in the roughest bear pit rooms, yeah. you know, I'm picking out... I could pick out four so, so like I said about anecdotes, like, you, you wouldn't sit there and tell me about the gig that was really nice because it wouldn't be... It wouldn't have a, such a good story to it. Yeah, I did a comedy set on Friday. It was, it was amazing. It was <laughs> lovely. It was really lovely. Orange were great. Everyone had a really good gig. Martin Davis smashed it. I loved you when I'm seeing. Uh, I was home in my bed by 11. It was banging. But Are you happy not, now? It's not, it's not interesting. <laughs> no, it's not amazing. Uh, so, what's what? How, how can we wrap this up? I guess what's 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 next? Are you got any? Is it just milk running forever? What's the what's on the horizon? Uh, I'll run milk till people stop coming. Yeah. Um, it's been six years. Uh, we've sold, I think, thirty to forty tonight before the door. So, people are still coming for this month. Um, what's next for me? Uh, I've got a new first. I want to. I want to be a better comic again. Uh, for a while, it became about the money and just you know the, the financial gain from a gig. But I don't know. I'm having a nice time with it at the moment, and I just want to keep enjoying it and having fun. It sounds cliched and fucking Facebook meme worthy, yeah. but it's not. If you enjoy it and you enjoy it and you want to carry on getting better at it, then keep on doing it. Awesome, Jonathan Nelson. Uh, thanks for that. Do you have a website to plug, or are you not uh, on the internet? I am on the internet. Um, I don't have my own performance website. I think that shows you maybe where I fell out of love with, with the game. Um, yeah, because getting a photo to put on the poster, <laughs> the one I had of you was, like, so out of date. I thought, couldn't you must be able to afford a photographer by now. Like, come on. <laughs> That's a very justifiable uh, criticism of me. Uh, I'm not, you're not the first promoter to, to say that of me. No, I haven't had a new headshot done since I was 22, so I probably... Should change. Put that. It on your Christmas list. <laughs> yeah, I just I just don't get around to it. But I definitely do. Uh, hopefully, updated website this year. I run my I've got my own promoting website, uh, which is laughtercraftcomedy.com. Um, Facebook comedy milk. Twitter at Jonathan Elston. Uh, you'll see me having a slaying your match with Hotel Chocolat at the moment. So that'll be fun for you. All. Awesome. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. So that was Jonathan Elston. And uh, if you want to go see him, uh, MC, on Friday the 1st, he'll be hosting at the Comedy Cellar in Bratnell at Southfield Park. Uh, I think I'll go along and watch that, to be honest. Last night, I was in Bournemouth, my first time uh, to Bournemouth. Um, and yeah, I seem to be uh, doing weekends to seaside towns in the middle of winter. Uh, so you can't even see the sea because it's it's so dark. But yeah, this was a really strange one. And this is part of the fun and adventure of comedy. You just get in a car or a, or a train or what have you, and you never really know what wait, what awaits you at the other end. And you just have to deal with it. This gig uh, was rather an unusual one because it was on a Saturday night and it was in quite a posh cafe uh, in the middle of town it seemed like although my geography of Bournemouth isn't that great um, and it was the comedy we were set up, the microphone and speaker was set up in a little kind of nook um, uh, where you, you could feet, you could sit about 15 people and then 
goodness knows how many more people were just all sort of sitting then in rows behind on like sofas and stuff and then behind that it was standing room only the place was absolutely heaving you couldn't really hear if you were too far back uh, so acoustically it wasn't what wasn't great uh, so it's, and it was also that the first time they'd, they'd had comedy there so the audience didn't really know what to expect now originally I was only booked to do 10 minutes uh, but we got to the venue only to discover uh, that the MC's car had broken down and he was still stuck on the motorway uh, so I jumped in as the last minute rail replacement MC and hosted the evening so I got up on the stage inverted commas and started the show and immediately uh, there was some bloke in the audience in the front row on his mobile phone talking to someone before I'd even had a chance to to tell them the rules that's an important part of being an MC setting uh, up the night properly telling them not to be on their phones but the bloke was already on the phone before the show had even started and it was really quite hard work to be honest with you uh, there was a contingent in the audience that they would you often get this um, and I'm still trying to work out the best we're dealing with it where when you ask the audience members oh what's your name where do you come from what's your job when they were giving deliberately obstructive answers not giving real names doing in jokes with each other uh, and the, the stupid maybe i should have just come out and said this that the stupid thing is that the more kind of obstructive and, and tricksy they are with me the more it hampers the enjoyment of the evening because because i can't really get anything funny off some bloke called dave calling himself Stuart or something and then we're giggling about it um, it's all just a bit pathetic uh, so I had to work really hard uh, and thankfully during the second break I had a really bizarre after the second after the first break I had a really bizarre conversation with an audience member uh, who first she told me off for assuming her gender and she then told me that uh, uh, she identified as being a cat uh, <laughs> so we had a very silly conversation about how she's probably wasted most of her nine lives and uh, that she uses the her hoopy earrings to entice budgies that she can then have as a snack uh, it all got very surreal uh, but i think this kind of kookiness is, is just standard in seaside towns it seems <laughs> but it, it was hard work cause it was it was a strange venue when we got there there were, there were also just lots of tables in the nook as well and I, I i told the owner look we've got to move these tables and try and get as many chairs and try and fit at least as many of the guys as we can sort of theater style and he goes oh well i want them to be comfortable and i want the night to be a success and i said well i want this to be a success as well uh, and if, it, if they're seated like this it's going to make it incredibly hard for us to do our job and the odds of this comedy night being successful are very very slim i mean there's a fine line you don't want to be uh you don't want to march into a, 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 a someone's venue and, and act like you own the place but at the same time he knows how to run a bar I'd know how to run a comedy club because I knew it was going to be hard work and if we hadn't moved the furniture um, then it would have been even harder uh, so, so I'm, I'm glad that he was he was nice enough to, to listen to me and the place made amazing coffee to be fair but I just felt particularly uh, the opening bit when I did some crowd work and then some materials to try to settle the room. I just had to work really, really hard. Um, and uh, But yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I don't mind that. It, these sort of nights make you stronger. But it wasn't until the first interval, though, that I felt kind of comfortable and I knew what I was doing. I mean, there were a few difficult characters in, but I didn't feel they were inherently a, like a bad audience or a hard audience. I just felt there were times where I just didn't have the required experience or to, to really draw the goodness out of them or it took me a little longer than I, I would have wanted but it is nights like this that, that really make you work and make you grow and uh, be better as a comic so uh, I was very grateful for it it was a tough gig for everyone I don't think anybody found it um, easy uh, the best uh, 
act, I think, on the night was a stylophobia. Uh, look this guy up. He's absolutely bonkers. He plays a stylophone. And in fact, I recorded an interview with him in Edinburgh uh, back in August that we're going to release. Uh, probably that's going to be the next one we release. So, so uh, uh, it is the most unusual musical act I- I've ever seen. So I'll look forward to uh, releasing that podcast for you guys a little later on. Uh, right. I suppose I better tell you what's coming up at the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club. Our next show is on Valentine's Day. Uh, mixed fee- I have very mixed feelings about Valentine's Day. I'm well aware a lot of people hate it uh, and a lot of people absolutely love it. Um, I personally dislike it. Well, no matter my personal circumstance, if I'm single, I'm made to feel inferior. And if I'm in a relationship then it just puts this undue stupid pressure on me to do something uh, and I, I just don't like it and I think a lot of people feel that way uh, where some people really go mad for it so either way uh, I think my comedy club on the 14th is the perfect place to celebrate or ignore Valentine's Day I mean we've got a drinks offer on um, and that's about it we're not going to go mad on the Valentine's Day thing we're not going to put hearts everywhere but at the same time a comedy night is a perfect idea for a date and it's also fine to go to comedy on your own I've gone by myself to shows loads of times and quite a lot of my audience members turn up on 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 their own and i take that as a compliment that i've I've managed to create a friendly and nice atmosphere so in couples on your own or with your mates uh, come along we've got a great lineup i am emceeing so i'm really looking forward to that and our headliner is matt reese fantastic comedian been trying to get him for absolutely ages and opening the show will be tom little who's a well fantastic app we've also got support from pope lonergan and stella graham and arnie pie uh so go to facebook.com forward slash stand and deliver comedy night and click on the big blue book now button uh, so uh, let's just do some highlights from my own personal gig diary on Saturday 2nd of February I'm doing the comedy ladder in tame at the cross keys pub and then the following Saturday on the 9th of February I'm doing the other comedy ladder I'm going to the comedy ladder Stoken Church branch it's a nice little place that and it's also really bizarre because it's bring your own bottle because um, you can only buy coffee there um so that should be interesting and then i'll be playing ninja duck comedy on february the 22nd of uh, february at great expectations i went to watch their show the other night I actually had a great time it's it's usually pretty busy so so do book your tickets if you do fancy coming to to see me there and that's a couple of highlights there'll be more gigs going up all the time at rodders.com r-h-o-d-d-e-r-s and while you're on in front of whatever screened device you have please do write us a review on iTunes like the nice guys at Tubcast or whatever you listen to this podcast on if it allows you to write a review go forth and do so I mean it is immeasurably helpful so uh, that's pretty much it this has been the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast I'll see you on the next episode <laughs>